Welcome to Aviation Past and Present with John Skeen and today myself, Graham Joyes. And today, one of my favourite places, Southwoods Car Museum. Welcome, John. It's lovely to be here. It's one of my favourite places too. Isn't it just superb? I love it so much I'll have an annual pass. Wise, I'm going to get one too. Mm -hmm. We've had um, family come out regularly from overseas and I always take them Take mm. them there. And and all the guys from the States who are all car collectors and enthusiasts, they just walk around with their mouths <laughs> wide open. And the cafe's nice as well. Indeed. Mm. Indeed. A superb place. Mm-hmm. So what are we going to look at in Southwoods? Well, Southwood Museum, uh, although it is basically a car museum, it has numerous aeronautical treasures hidden mm. in various corners and and used to power some interesting bits of machinery which we'll come to. Very interesting from a, a whole bunch of perspectives. So, you've I've got a handout sheet here you give me to to, <laughs> to go through the program. My first question is: the photo shows the tiger moth to the left. Yes. What is that big propeller hanging on the wall to the uh, right of it? Not having a ladder to climb up and look at part numbers and things, I suspect it's a DC three. That is a Big bit of metal, isn't it? Yep, it was to absorb 1,200 horsepower back in the day. Right. Because mm-hmm. the camera perspective you know, tells lies, but that propeller is bigger than the Tiger Moth. <laughs> Maybe not. No, no. It's probably oh, a smidgen under 12 feet in diameter. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Three blades, controllable pitch, as it was. 1930s propeller. There we go. Right. Okay. Now, the other thing that um, is, it's not just all big aeroplanes, they have radio controlled as well. well. One of the first things you see as you come into the, uh, the, the walkway is a big model aeroplane hanging in the ceiling. And uh, its uh, information board tells you that it was um, made by a guy called Alan Vose way back before the Second World War, 1938. So right. it was uh, the leading edge, if you'll excuse the expression the leading edge of model aeroplane technology of the day. Well, it would have been valve It would be valve technology. Yeah, single channel and uh, a single-cylinder model aircraft engine just under a cubic inch. Right. Which was probably a good effort for 1938. So how wide's the wingspan on this thing? Oh, it's got to be near two metres. So it's quite a sizable aeroplane. It's quite sizable, yeah. Right. And beautifully made. I'd love to see the remote control here. <laughs> You might have to warm it up for half an hour beforehand. That's <laughs> right. That's right, yes. Anyway, it's there. That's a good starter for the what's mm. what other treasures are there. Mm. Next we have. Next we have, yes. Uh, back in the 60s, there was a, a movie made called The Magnificent Men and Their Flying Machines. I could sing the song if you wanted me to, but I prefer give, not give to. Give us a couple of bars. No, thing. <laughs> this is uh, a family show. <laughs> Um, and this uh, particular aircraft on display is a reproduction uh, built by a gentleman called Mr. Doug Bianchi back in 1960, and it actually flew in the movie. Right. And it was a, a Vickers Type 22, and the date was 1910. But he didn't use a 1910 engine? No, no it was a, a flat four Continental, which the, the information board says is a modern engine, but it was actually probably 1950s. Right. So, <laughs> uh-huh, 70 years old now. 
it might be worth getting the movie out just just to. I've, look I've, for I've them been I've been tempted to go on um, onto the old YouTube or whatever or mm. Netflix and see if I can find it. Because those old movies, they actually used real aeroplanes because yes. they had none of the fancy com- computer no, graphics no we computers. have today. And they had real pilots. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and some of them were movie stars as well. Did that actually have ailerons? Or, oh, I said did, yes. Uh, it did, yes. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a wing warper. Right. It was probably a bridge too far to, to do that. But they did build a box kite for the movie as well. Bristol box kite, huge big biplane thing. Not unlike a Wright Brothers, but but bigger. Right. Anyway, it's that, that's hanging from the ceiling for you to go and walk around and ooh and ah about how it's very flimsy and so forth. They were brave men. Who they were brave those. men, yeah. Now, the next photo we've got is actually an engine, an Allison V1710. Mm, well, this uh, is an ex-fighter plane engine of the 1940s, and it was built into a dragster. Uh, he must have been a brave man. Indeed. Uh, it was built in the 1950s, uh, so that's, you know, four or five years after the war ended. And it was um, an Allison v- V1710, V12 engine. Uh, quite a big capacity. It's about 30 litres. Right. Horsepower? <clears throat> Horsepower is about 120. <laughs> 120? 1,200? No, 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 1,200, sorry. Indeed, indeed, just, just a fact. The conversion slipped my mind. Yeah. Um, it was a solid 1,200 horsepower. Now, a characteristic of an aircraft engine is that, um, that power doesn't just build up, it arrives. Indeed. <laughs> it's yes. there. And so it must have been a frightening thing to try and keep in a straight line down a drag strip. And the photo shows the, um, is it a turbocharger or it's a, a... It's a geared supercharger driven geared from super- the engine, yeah. So. Yeah. It's a very big it's unit. It's a big engine. The, 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 the Kitty Hawk uh, aircraft was quite a big airplane as well. Mm. Probably bigger than a Hurricane on Spitfire, slightly, but bigger. And this was the, the American way, I guess. Yes, and wouldn't it have sounded lovely? Oh. All those straight exhaust oh, stacks. Not a problem. And just from a sort of an interest point of view, the guy used, I think, a DC-3 control wheel as a steering wheel for this thing. Right. It just looks extremely much like one. So, Anyway, it's there, it's sitting there. You can go and have a, a gaze again, at it. again, a brave and, and, man who climbed uh, yeah. into the cockpit of that. Just pretend you're in the seat with all those horsepower in front of you. <laughs> Indeed. So, moving on. The de Havilland Vampire. Interesting aeroplane. It was a lovely aeroplane, wasn't it? It was a, a, a very brave attempt at an early jet plane. Um, during World War Two, it was mm. actually a, a during the war development. Because there's a really interesting historical tussle, if that's the word to use, between Frank Whittle oh. of um, oh, what was the name of uh, Power Jets was Power his, Jets yes. and um, and the guys at De Havilland. Yes, uh, especially the engineer in charge of the engines and Mr. Frank Han, Mr. Frank Halford. Right, and I think it was actually a major during World War One, but. Vampire made by de Havilland, and uh, uh, Mr. Halford goes back to the Tiger Moth days. He developed the engine for the Tiger Moth. Oh, right. Which was half a Renault V8 from memory. So he's a really accomplished engineer. Very, very astute engineer, yeah. When I read the history of Frank Whittle, um, they paralleled it with the German um, engineer who was doing very similar things with jet engines. Mm -hmm. So... 
they didn't mention Halford. So there must have been a whole group of people experimenting with, with, with jet propulsion. Mm, probably more than you know. Yeah, indeed. indeed. And don't mention the, the Junkers people in Germany. They, they had a love affair with the Axial jet, mm, which mm. ended up in the Messerschmitt 262. Mm. But the other guys... The other guys, <laughs> they were fond of the centrifugal compressor, which was a very tough but heavy kind of compressor. But it was known, it was like a supercharger compressor on steroids, much bigger. Right. Almost up to a metre in diameter. And it was the design that finally won out, wasn't it? Uh, well, it, yeah, it did. Um, and they ended up with, um, some of them had two sides, so the air came in both ways and shot up the top and into the combustion chambers. Right. So Just the vampire that's in um, Southwards, yep. it was RAF service? It had, yes, it had an RAF career, yeah. Um, and uh, it went into service in Britain in 1951, which um, coincidentally was my year of birth, so <laughs> I suppose I entered service in 1951. Indeed. Um, probably, and, and you probably made just about as much noise. <laughs> probably. <laughs> I'm not sure whether I was axial or, or centrifugal, but it, the noise was there. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, it, it had five years of RAF service, and then it um, came out to New Zealand and flew with the RNZAF. It was withdrawn in 1972. Yeah. Now, it had done 2,700-odd hours. <laughs> yeah. Is that a lot of hours for a, that kind of aircraft? Ooh, I'd say they were being kind to it. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not a big number. It was over, what would we say here, six, uh, 56? 16 so years. So it's four, 14, 16 years. Mm. You can do the maths. Not a huge number of hours per year. Right. Uh, it's still a complete aircraft, isn't it? Is I believe so. Uh, it's displayed with an engine underneath that doesn't give any indication whether the engine's fitted to the airframe or not. Right. Uh, whether that engine was in it or it's just a representative engine, but... Certainly, you'd wonder how it actually fitted in there. Mm. It looks bigger in diameter than the space it was going into. Indeed. And now, the, this still was made of wood and metal sandwich, wasn't it? Uh, uh, it was. Mm, most of the airframe was metal. Right. But the, the nose from the intakes forward to the nose wheel area, it was a balsa wood plywood sandwich. Right. Very reminiscent of the mosquito. Mm, mm. Uh, so it was it was um, De Havilland's um, way of getting a nice streamlined shape without right. too much intricate metalwork. Uh, interesting, mm. but it, it carried a punch. It had uh, four cannon underneath, twenty millimeter, would spoil your day if it hit you. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There we are. So, right. But it's it's uh, it's posed in almost like a landing configuration. Yes. So you can walk underneath it. Now, so, the other to have on the what there is the tiger uh, moth. The other end of the scale. The great old tiger moth, eh? Uh, this one um, ended up registered as ZKAOX. Lovely. And um, it was flown by members of the Southland Aero Club. It was built in Australia back in the day. Uh, in, in 1941, so probably saw some training service in Australia before it came to New Zealand. Now, Tiger Moths were built all around the world, weren't they? Cause oh, they were, yes. Because they're built here in, in, in Wellington yes. and, and in Australia. Yes. So did they just set up a factory wherever they... Um, they 
I guess so. I guess <laughs> I guess that that was easier than building yeah. them in, in the UK uh, and, and, and trying to fly them out. <laughs> Only the pioneers did that. Yeah. I suspect they came out as kit sets. Yeah, sure. A lot of it. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it um, ended up um, in Wanganui, and uh, I suspect that's where it lay for a while, and it was bought by the, by um, Southwood. So it's a nice display. It's a it's a fine looking tiger moth. Mm. What they don't have is a tiger moth engine sitting underneath it, which is maybe something to work on in the future. Right. Uh huh. Needs a gypsy major there. Now the engine was upside down, wasn't it? Uh, it the, was, yes. The crankshaft was at the, at the at top, top. Mm-hmm. and the pistons hung down. Yes, they did. Yeah. Uh, when you look at it on the side, it it shows that the propeller had good ground clearance when it was um, on the on the landing and takeoff runs. The earlier ones, the the de Havilland moths, the propeller was nearer the bottom of the fuselage. Right. And they had to be careful not to dig the propeller in. Yes. So wasn't good on the propeller, right. nor the grass. No. So it was a practical um, fix for a, a known problem was mm. to invert mm. the engine. Mm. Now, what's really I find it really interesting is underneath the Tiger, there's a whole display of different aircraft engines, mm-hmm. and you see. Um, all the ranges and types, just about. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting. Uh, in order of, of viewing them, really, there was a Rolls-Royce Merlin sitting there, um, the famous Rolls-Royce Merlin from Spitfire and Hurricane and Lancaster days. Mm. Uh, interesting engine. This particular one was built by Packard in America. Because they built them under license, they didn't did, they? Yes, Simply uh-huh. because just for the, for the quantity, mm. basically. I read a comment in a historical thing that... They said the Packard was actually a better engine than the British-built ones simply because the American um, workshop equipment was in far better condition because mm. Britain was getting pretty hammered by the Germans and their gear was getting pretty worn. And so the American engines were tighter and <laughs> more robust. Mm-hmm. Whether that's true well, is... I, I could believe that. Mm. Um, there were Americans weren't under any wartime pressure as such. Exactly. Uh, well, do they ever have to turn turn the lights out? No. <laughs> <laughs> there was a big factory up near Glasgow uh, where that turned out a lot of Merlins. Right. And they prided themselves on on building a good engine. Mm. So. But this really is the historic engine of World War Two, isn't it? Uh, it's a much loved engine, um, and it grew into being um, the Griffin, which was a much bigger, mm. but. I don't know, about six or seven litres bigger in capacity. Right, because uh, this one's, what, 27 litres? It is, yes. Um, and what, 12 to 1,300 horsepower? Uh, well, there's an interesting story there. It started off uh, at just over 1,000 horsepower. And over time, with supercharging and better uh, airflow through the engine, it, it, they almost doubled the horsepower. Right. So a later model Merlin would put out nearly 2,000. It was still the same size, 27 litres, and it still turned at 3,000 RPM. And it was still very reliable. And still reliable. Mm. So that's that's what um, development can do for you. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a gentleman called Stanley Hooker, or Dr. Stanley Hooker, I should say, who uh, did all the improvements in the supercharging area. Right. And his name became famous uh, later when he joined Bristol for the Pegasus engine mm-hmm. and the Olympus for the Concorde. Oh, right. So there are a whole series of engineering names that, oh, that yes. come through the British aircraft oh, industry. Yes, yes. 
And uh, the gentleman in charge of Rolls-Royce at the time was uh, Lord Hives. And when he was thinking about should we get into jets or not, he arranged with an engineer uh, to demonstrate what the horsepower versus thrust was of an airplane. So apparently they got a, a Spitfire to the edge of the airfield and tied it to a big substantial fence post with a spring balance, Right. ran it at full noise, and the horsepower and the thrust were almost the same, about 1,200. Right. He said, right, we're getting into jets. Mm. Mm. So the Merlin was putting out 1,200 horse, and the spring balance was showing something like 1,200 pounds of thrust. Right. Isn't that interesting? Because the, <laughs> there are all sorts of other issues out there. A, a propeller-driven aeroplane can only go at a certain speed because the propeller yep. then becomes... And drag <laughs> yes, instead of the finite speed. Yeah. Mm. Now, the, the, um, just for comparison, the Vampire engine was somewhere around about three thousand pounds of thrust, so slightly more than twice uh, mm. a Spitfire engine, but of probably about smaller frontal area. Yes, indeed. And that's that's, that's where the advantage came in. Yes. You haven't got this great big fan up the front. No. Mind you, it's good for keeping the pilot cool. Yeah, you want to see him sweat when it stops. <laughs> exactly. An oldie but a goodie. Mm-hmm. Now, the next engine in the uh, row ah, is a Bristol Hercules. Yes. Ah. I'm very enamoured with Bristol engines because they were sleeve valves. Okay. Now, there's so, a small display in Southwards which yep. you can turn the handle. Yes. One has got uh, an engine cylinder and valve assembly like a car. Mm-hmm. And when you turn the handle, it's very chunky as it turns around as the valves are opened and closed against yes. the springs. The sleeve valve, when you turn it, it's like silk. Right. There's very little resistance. Because you haven't got reciprocating parts right. stopping and starting. No, you have a sleeve that slides up and rotates and slides back down and rotates, mm. opening and closing the valves. It's, it's particularly nice. <laughs> Did you ever, ever work on these engines? Oh, only a little bit. Right. As apprentices, we got to do the oil changes because they were the most onerous job. Indeed, yes. <laughs> and, we, and we did it outside on tarmac. Yeah, the pre- apprentices but, uh, always did, oh, did the dirty jobs. But you learned. Mm. <laughs> uh, the, this, the particular engine on show was from a Bristol freighter that uh, listeners might remember uh, as uh, 20,000 rivets vibrating information. Indeed. That was a great documentary, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. So the Bristol freighter. Much, uh, much used by Safe Air across um, Cook Strait. Mm. So. Now, the interesting part about these engines is that they originally they were just hand-built, weren't they? Pretty much, yeah. So to much. get them fit for war construction, they mm-hmm. had to redo their whole uh, foundry practice? Yes. Um, they eventually went into centrifugal castings, which... I don't know the whole technique, but it, it, it resulted in a perfectly cylindrical sleeve, mm. which wouldn't jam in the cylinder, which is a good idea. <laughs> well, the, the yep. pilot always thought yep. so, yeah. And the other interesting part about these engines is that every sleeve had its own drive gear. Right. Now, this was a 14-cylinder engine, so it had 14 drive gears all driven by another bunch of gears. Right. And if you ever saw one with the front casing off, it looked like a big Swiss watch. It was mm. <laughs> quite impressive. What impresses me with these big radial engines, and there are a number of the of the variations, is the way they have a giant conrod with all the other conrods yep. joining onto it. Yep. For years I tried to figure out <laughs> how they actually did that yep. until I saw a, a YouTube clip 
Really yep. a clever... Uh, if you think about it, a single row radial engine of about with maybe seven or nine cylinders has one throw on the crankshaft, mm. so it acts like a sing- big single cylinder. Yes. And the the two row like this one, which is fourteen cylinders, has just two throws on the crankshaft, mm. so it's like a acts like a big twin. Yes. And and it's got a very smooth power output. That's one of the reasons for having it that way. Mm. And and they're air cooled as well, so per horsepower they can be a bit lighter. Right. Um, and fingers crossed a bit more reliable. So. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Now, the next engine mm-hmm. is a Hall Scott. Mm-hmm. Now, you'll notice a big question mark here. Mm. It's a very small and it's an inverted two-cylinder air-cooled engine. Quite interesting. I have no idea what it flew in, and there's nothing on the uh, information board to tell you. Right. So 1910 vintage. Yep. Um, yeah. Can that have an aeroplane in, in, in New Zealand, I, possibly? I would, possibly. I have no idea. And I've tried to Google it, and I was none the wiser. Mm. So here we are. Help. Indeed. <laughs> if any of the listeners know what a Hall Scott aero engine of 1910 went into, uh, please ring the radio station. <laughs> right. And um, Southwoods Museum will chiefly add a, a footnote to the display. Poss- possibly. Now, here's another question mark, Graham. Mm. This engine's called a, a, a Samson nine-cylinder radial around about 1920. And once again, I have no idea what kind of aircraft it came out of. Uh, now, by this stage, the radial engine, because the early ones, the whole engine spun in the crankshaft That, that was the rotary. Right. Listen in, in a month's time, we're going to talk about that one. Right. Okay. <laughs> so th- this is the more uh, modern practice radial engine. The, the the rotary radial engines pretty much disappeared at the end of World War One, mm. for various reasons. They just they just stopped, and the radials took over. So interesting. So again, no one knows who and what and why this engine no, was. No, I, I've done a lot of research in the background, and I couldn't find anything remotely interesting. Uh, an aircraft called a BA Swallow had a a radial about that horsepower. Uh, interesting plane, quite sleek, uh, quite a long, uh, high aspect ratio wing, um, but uh, mm. pass. So, uh, please, listeners, uh, Samson nine-cylinder radial, what aircraft was it in, please? Were there any records kept of planes imported into New Zealand, World War One, World Two World Wars, or? Uh, only if you can find an old book containing the aircraft type against the registration. Right. Might be the only way to do it. But mm. uh, White's Directory of some years ago might, you know, if you can find them in a library somewhere. I maybe don't have the time to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Uh-huh. But we'll never know. One day you might be talking to someone and they'll say, oh, that plane that we saw on my great uncle's place, etc., etc." Now, the, no. uh, the next thing we're going yes. to talk about yes. is, well, it's aero engine. Yes. But it's... um. Uh, <laughs> a a liquid craft. <laughs> it's the pièce de résistance of the whole of the museum. Mm. Uh, it was um, uh, a World War Two again a, a Kitty Hawk engine powered speedboat that Mr. Southwood himself was very enamoured with, mm. and uh, it, it eventually came to grief due to metal fatigue in the propeller, and uh, which managed to whip itself around and 
chop a big hole in the bottom of the boat, which then sunk. Indeed. Um, but he was doing about 100 mile an hour at the time, was, wasn't he? He was up there, yeah. And again, it was 1,200 horsepower. Mm. Uh, the Allison 1710 engine, the same as the dragster that we, at the beginning of the show. Because mm. the boat was called the, the, the Redhead. Redhead. I'm not yep. sure why, <laughs> but it was called the Redhead. I did hear a comment, and I don't know whether this is true or not, but his wife had red hair. Now, I don't know whether that's oh, true or not. That, that would fit. Who, who would know? Yeah. <laughs> that would fit. Well, I'm, I'm sure that the Southwood family would know. Yeah, possibly. If you ask, yeah. So it was the first boat in Australasia to exceed 100 mile an hour. It had 101.26 miles per hour, 22nd of February 1953, on Wellington Harbour. Mm-hmm. Must have been a nice day. <laughs> I said, well, it wasn't um, six metre swells. <laughs> mm. Anyway, there's, there's, there are certainly some nice information boards around the craft. And you can stand adjacent to it and you can see the hole. And mm. it's, all, it's just the centrepiece of the museum, really. Indeed. Actually, I just read down the notes. So I hadn't realised that it actually achieved 109.9 mile an hour in May 1956 in Auckland. Mm-hmm. So it yeah. was a very quick was, bit of machinery. It a, and it was heavy. It was mm. solidly built with this whopping big engine sitting in the middle. Yeah. Um, and because of my particular in, uh, interest in aircraft instruments of the time, the, the instrument panel of the boat looks like it came out of an airplane. It's just... Which would make sense. Which would make it? sense, yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going fast. Yes. And the engine was controlled by what looks suspiciously like an aircraft uh, throttle quadrant as well. Mm. But there we are. Now, I noticed in one of the um, photos, you've got the manifold pressure gauge limited at an optimistic 53 inches. Mm-hmm. Explain that. Oh, no. <laughs> Please, no. Uh, supercharged engines are generally uh, measured in, in their the inches of mercury pressure that the right the, the the manifold sits at it's an indication of horsepower in a way yes. but beyond that i probably would just get into a muddle right but 53 inches is very very high for a piston engine so maybe that um, needle has been reset by somebody um, possibly right this, this probably says do not go near this red line or there'll be a big bang from behind <laughs> exactly you. exactly but there we go so 53 inches is a lot of manifold pressure right and we come to the tail end, an unusual collection of automobile, automobile manufacturers' emblems, with a surprising number having an aeronautical theme. That's interesting. You've, you've lost your page. I've lost my you? page. Hang on. I'll, <laughs> That's I'll, fine. I, I know what they all are anyway. Yeah, so. yeah I, I was looking around and it just occurred to me that a lot of these manufacturers' badges all had wings on them. And I just thought it was a nice way to... To bring the show to an end. Would there have been any crossover between some of them? Uh, read me a name. <laughs> Jusenberg. Uh, no, no, I think they just, just uh, a bit like, um, what's the common one? Uh, gone, Red, uh, Red Bull gives you wings. <laughs> yes, right, yes, indeed. I think yeah. it's in the same indeed. genre as that. But, uh, and then we have the tail end, the, the which is a Plymouth. Mm-hmm. The Superbird, the... Uh, Plymouth Barracuda, I think it was. Huge big wing on the back. Uh, it's about, it's certainly above the roofline of the car. Mm. Uh, and it's on display at Southwood. 
And uh, I won't say too much more. It's just uh, I just thought it was a fitting way to bring it to an end. And that's really good timing because we're just about to run out of time. Wonderful. But can we encourage people, take an afternoon off, Yes. go to the Southwoods Car Museum. Certainly. It is just outstanding. Yep, go for it. And you, I, you, won't be, you won't regret it. I, I was there recently and I took, took my granddaughter with me and we went into the downstairs gallery where oh, yes. there's a lot of cars of our era. And I was able to say to her, oh, I owned one of those, had one of those, father-in-law had one of those. Mm-hmm. And she looked in absolute amazement that these are all old cars. <laughs> <laughs> Funny that. <clears throat> Thank you, Graham. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, John. You've been listening to John Skeen and myself, Graham Joyce, the programme Aviation Past and Present, and today we focused on Southwoods Car Museum. Thanks, John. Thank you very much. We'll, we'll come back and do it again. This program is made with assistance from New Zealand On Air for radio broadcast and through the accessmedia.nz website. Thank you, New Zealand On Air.